0: Greetings, Dog Nation. I am Jamie Cheek. This is a view from the couch. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. The weather is getting cool, but the season is really starting to heat up. The games this week may not look as interesting on paper as they have over the last couple weeks, and it definitely doesn't look as good as next week, which will be absolutely the best week in the season so far. But there's still a lot going on. A lot of the games this week are going to have big time implications on division races and conference races and the continued race for the college football playoff. Thank you so much for joining me and I hope you enjoy the show. All right, let's get started by taking a quick look back at what happened last week. Obviously, we're going to start in Athens, where for the first time all season, Georgia looked like the team that we've seen over the last two seasons, 51-13 over Kentucky between the hedges. It was an awesome night in Sanford Stadium. I said last week that I thought that this was a really good matchup for Georgia, and that turned out to be exactly right. I'm not right very often, so I kind of have to toot my own horn on the few times that I am. Georgia was really good against the run. They held Kentucky as a team to less than 60 yards rushing. Carson Beck was absolutely excellent. 28 of 35, 389 yards and four touchdowns. Georgia looked like a killer for the first time this year and now we have to see if they can take that and grow on it over the next few weeks. Looking around some of the other games that we saw last week the big game of the day coming into the day and coming out of the day frankly Oklahoma 35 Texas 30 it was really cool Georgia played at seven so we 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 didn't have to get down there too too early so I was able to watch this entire game really um interesting kind of game like just from a complete like spectator standpoint i kind of got bored during parts of it it wasn't it, it didn't strike me as two really elite teams trading punches it was like two really good teams trading punches and and i don't know what the difference is other than when you're watching it there's some games that just the talent level on the field or maybe it's a stylistic thing it just really captivates you There really wasn't a whole lot other stuff going on during this game, and yet I had a hard time really focusing in and kind of being locked in on every single play. I mean, like I said, I was watching it. I just wasn't really emotionally invested in it the way that I have even past Red River games. Two years ago, I remember watching it, and that was a game where Texas kind of jumped into an early lead, and then here comes Caleb Williams. That was Lincoln Riley's last year and it was like an epic comeback, and Oklahoma won at the end. So a a, a similar situation here, but I think maybe part of it was it wasn't the cleanest game, okay? Uh, They were very evenly matched, and there were parts, especially in the fourth quarter, that was extremely entertaining. Um, But I definitely came out of this thinking that both of the teams are good, and I'm not sure either of them can hang with the best teams if they play their best, right? know somebody's gonna probably sit there and say, well, Texas went into Tuscaloosa and beat Alabama. Yes, they did. But I don't know if you played that game today with Alabama kind of figuring it out a little bit. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. I don't know that I believe that is the same that, that we have the same result. Um of all of the units in this game, the OU offense is is decent, but if you could manage to slow down the running game, especially the running game from the quarterback position, I I, I think you can kind of contain that offense. The Texas offense is the most confusing unit in America to me because I, after all this time, I don't know if Quinn Ewers is any good. I I really don't, and it aggravates me that I don't. Um, Texas's defense looked extremely vulnerable. I mean, there were multiple big drives where Dylan Gabriel and Oklahoma had to do it. Had, had really needed a score, needed to move the ball, needed to, you know, Texas needed to get the ball back. They were trailing for most of the second half. And and the Texas defense it wasn't terrible. It just never made it feel like it it felt like they were lucky to get off the field every time that they did. I think maybe that's the best way. You you, you see defenses that are like bend and don't break, right? That means they give up a lot of yards, but they stop you from scoring in key moments. You got defenses that, you know, are just dominant like like Alabama's defense looks to be where you can feel them controlling the game and just constantly harassing the other teams uh offense the other team's quarterback. Texas does not have either one of those traits. They are just hey, it was a a, a drop or a penalty or something like that and then they seem to be able to be effective, but it definitely felt like oh, OU could just drive down the field on Texas anytime it needed to and that's what exactly what happened at the end of the game i feel like OU's defense is probably the only really really good unit out of all of them that were on that field which is crazy because last year OU's defense looked completely lost under Brent Venables in his first year. Um, I mean, Venables was always great at Clemson, so it's not surprising that they are able to like put it together and, and and be very good. But they were so bad last year, and at least so far this year they've been so good, It it is surprising to me that they've been able to make that turnaround so quickly. Um, the assumption immediately after this game, you hear the national assumption that, oh, these two teams will play again for the Big 12 title. And, you know, if you want to put two SEC teams in the in the Big 12 championship game, there's, you know, as an SEC homer, I, I like to talk a little trash about that. So that sounds good to me. But what I saw is a Texas team that could absolutely lose again and an OU team that can also lose. So I would, I would probably put money on Texas and OU playing again. I don't think you're going to have an undefeated Oklahoma playing a one-loss Texas in the Big 12 championship game. I believe that at least one of the two teams will pick up another loss as they go through the season. But that was a very interesting game. Uh, let's kind of move around a little bit here. Let USC. Whoa, boy. How did they make me stay up until almost 2 o'clock in the morning while they were messing around uh, playing Arizona? On, on Saturday night or Sunday morning as it turned out here on the East Coast. Um, and then on the other side of that, as we get ready for this week got Notre Dame running out of gas against Louisville. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but both of those teams coming into what was supposed to be one of the marquee matchups of this coming week, and it still is, but a lot, at least for me, a lot of steam has come out of that game because you see, USC at home struggling to beat a 3-3 three and three Arizona team. And then you see Notre Dame, who early in the season, I know they weren't playing anybody, but they looked dynamic on offense. The defense looked really, really good. They hung with Ohio State in a way that really now, as you look back, makes you wonder, did that game say more about Notre Dame or Ohio State? And then – They beat Duke in a way that was kind of like, okay, they won the game, but they didn't look overly impressive. And then last week, Louisville really just showed that they were the better team. So, you know, maybe Louisville's really good. I know there's been a lot of talk this week about the idea of three undefeated ACC teams, which is a fun thought exercise, and this is not a shot. I think the ACC has some really good teams, and I think the top of the ACC is better than the top of the SEC for sure. So, you know, I want to get that out of the way before I say what I'm about to say, which is let's be a little bit realistic in how often people go undefeated, okay? Like that's not just something that's going to happen where you're going to have all these undefeated teams. It is not easy to go undefeated. And teams like Ohio State and Georgia and Alabama and Clemson over the last five or ten years who have done it 12-0 in the regular season undefeated is what I'm talking about. They've done it with more regularity than it's usually done, okay? And so I think it's gotten people like a little confused to how the ups and downs of college football, or maybe they just forgot a little bit. It's not easy to go undefeated. And let me just go ahead and say this. Louisville is not going to go undefeated. Not because they're not a good team, but they're not going to go undefeated. That's not the kind of team that goes undefeated. Maybe Florida State, and maybe you get Florida State and North Carolina doing it, but come on now. Listen, we're propping Louisville up because they beat a Notre Dame team that was playing their third straight-ranked team. So let's take a breath on Louisville. It's very impressive what Jeff Brom's doing in his first year there. I think he will, based on what he was able to do at Purdue, bringing that to Louisville, if he can continue, especially in the portal, to kind of pick up some guys and really supplement their, uh, you know, their high school recruiting. I think Jeff problems going to do really, really well at, at Louisville, but let's back off a little bit on a three undefeated teams in the ACC. When usually the ACC is Clemson 30 miles of crap. And then everybody else. So let's, let's all just take a little bit of a breath on that. Alabama 26, a and M 20. I did not see one second of this game. I was following it on my phone. Um, but Jalen Milrow's stat line, 21 of 33 for three touchdowns and an interception. Um, Alabama really struggled to run the ball statistically. So obviously Milroe had to win it. And I mean, that's, that's going to be everybody's game plan against Alabama moving forward, right? Stop the run, do whatever you have to do to stop the run and dare Jalen milroe to beat you. Um, and in this game he did. Now he did that by scoring 26 points. So that's where the the thin margin that I think this Alabama team has. They have obviously. And I don't, you know, I've said since the beginning of the year I didn't think they were very good. I don't back off of that at all. But what they have done is they've created a very narrow pathway for themselves of a style of game that they can win. They can play really good defense. And they can play decent enough offense that they can win a game played in the 20s. I don't think there is any chance, except maybe LSU, because LSU's defense on the back end in that secondary is so terrible that Alabama might actually be able to to pass the ball big time. Like, Milroe may really be able to go crazy against them just because he does throw a good deep ball. And LSU just, for whatever reason, cannot stop deep passes. Other than that game, Alabama's going to have to keep you in the 20s. I don't think they can win a game in the 30s, and they definitely can't win a game in the 40s. So it's going to be interesting to see they have a very specific game model that they can win. And if they can force everybody they play for the rest of the regular season into that game model – then they are going to be in Atlanta playing the SEC East champion, which at this point I presume will be Georgia. So uh, after all of this in the SEC, all this talk about upheaval, uh, the SEC is down, it's it's closer top to bottom than it's been in years, we're going to end up in Atlanta probably with Georgia playing Alabama again for like the 175th year in a row. Um, but by far the most interesting thing that happened all week happened on Late Saturday night, Miami won a game against Georgia Tech. They won the game. They went out. They did what they needed to do. It was 20-16, to 16, I believe. Miami had the ball. The clock was running. Tech was out of timeouts. It was under a minute to play. It was a third down play. And all Miami had to do was take a knee unfortunately for Miami Miami fans the entire state of Florida and hurricanes in general um Mario Cristobal apparently doesn't believe in taking knees he has done this I I wasn't aware of this I didn't follow Cristobal at Florida I have not really followed Miami very much over the last couple years they played a couple big games that I've kind of kept an eye on but like I can't pretend that I'm sitting there watching Miami week in and week out but in this past week since this happened, you've had a lot of reports and people like going back and saying that, yeah, Cristobal doesn't like taking knees. He'll He'll physically run the clock out by turning around and handing it off to the running back. Well, in this game, rather than taking a knee on third down, they ran the ball. The running back fumbled the ball, which is why you take the knee. They fumbled the ball back to a Georgia Tech team that had no timeouts and was down four points. Two plays later, with two seconds left on the clock, Georgia Tech scampers into the end zone and wins the game they lost. And I I know the way I'm saying this is weird, but it, it, it was done. The Miami football team won this game, and the Miami football coach allowed the other team to literally steal a win away from them. It cannot be overstated how much this loss is 100% on Mario Cristobal. I haven't really heard a lot of people defending the decision. I have heard people say, well, I mean, Miami's defense still allowed the touchdown. They were done. If you're a defensive player for Miami in that situation, you are talking on the sideline about where you're going after the game what you're going to do after the game, what party you're going to go to. You're done. The game is over. You won the game. And because your idiot coach thinks that for some reason there's something more noble about running a draw than just taking a knee, all of a sudden you're back on the field, your head's spinning. I'm surprised they could even find their helmets at that point. Two plays later, you've lost the game. And, and nobody knew what happened. This whole thing took about 90 seconds of real time. It was the most egregious, awful coaching I can ever remember seeing. And, and I understand I am not a historian, okay? But I watch a lot of football. And you can question a coach's decision. Man, he should have kicked the field goal there instead of going for it. Don't go for it on fourth down in in your own territory or whatever. There's a hundred decisions in every single game where you can question the coach. I have never seen a more blatant example of a coach just doing a ridiculously stupid thing to directly cause his team to lose a game. Anybody that knows anything about football would have taken a knee. Like, casual fans who only watch the CBS 330 game and then the playoff and the national championship game would know you have to take a knee there. Anybody that can do math would know you have to take a knee there. And Mario Cristobal, who's making $10 million a year to rebuild Miami, managed to lose a game to Georgia Tech, who had just lost a Bowling Green in Atlanta the week before. It is the most egregious coaching I have ever seen. And honest to goodness, if they would have fired Mario Cristobal on Monday, they absolutely would have been justified in doing. It. So I obviously very fired up about that. So sorry about that. That was a look back. Let's take a time out and then let's look forward for our viewing guide for week seven. All right. Let's start our viewing guide on friday night if you are a absolute sicko like me and if you listen to this podcast you got to be at least a little bit of a sicko uh friday night at 10 p.m stanford on the road at colorado on espn so spend some time with the family enjoy a nice family night put everybody to bed and then watch coach prime try to get his fifth win of the season um with Colorado, which would pretty much at that point guarantee them a bowl game. You need to be six wins to be guaranteed a, a spot in a bowl. But every year there's 175 bowls and there's not enough six and six or better teams. So a fifth win would give Colorado the opportunity to be selected for a bowl because all five of those wins would have been over uh power five teams or not power five, but like uh power five group of five. I don't remember. I do if, if you know what I'm talking about, you know. But they would basically be eligible to be selected by a bowl, and there is zero chance that if they're eligible to be selected that they wouldn't be selected because that bowl game, unlike the tomato bowl or, you know, the mayonnaise bowl, would you could play it anywhere on any day, and it's going to get viewers because everybody wants to watch Colorado just because they want to see what's going to happen. So you be one of those everybody's tonight at 10 p.m., Colorado and Stanford. Uh, You probably only need to watch the first half. I think Colorado will take care of it. Uh, But, you know, stay up till 11, 1130, and uh, see what Shador and Coach Prime are doing. Let's move to Saturday, and it's a really weird Saturday slate, okay? Because there are five different games at noon that I think are interesting and worth keeping an eye on. The top four teams in the nation all play at noon. Georgia at Vanderbilt on CBS, Indiana at Michigan on Fox, Ohio State at Purdue on Peacock, and Syracuse at Florida State on ABC. Um, I don't think we see any upsets anywhere in here. Obviously, we're going to talk a little bit. I I cannot promise you that I can deep dive into Georgia Vandy. And honestly, you can probably be honest and say that you don't want me to. So we're going to meet each other's expectations on that situation. Indiana won't have anything for Michigan. Ohio State, they've they've really struggled in West Lafayette uh, when they play Purdue. I would not be surprised if very much like last week when Ohio State was playing Maryland, you have a first half where Ohio State seems like oh my gosh maybe they're going to screw this up, and then they get right in the second half. Uh, but ultimately, I think Ohio State will be fine playing Purdue, and then Syracuse. They they did this last year. I think they got a six and zero last year before they lost to Clemson in Death Valley and then they like, I think they might have lost their last six games of the season. I didn't look it up. They were 4-0 to start this season. Clemson beat them a couple weeks ago. I can't remember who thumped them last week. Maybe UNC, but somebody thumped them last week. Uh, Florida State's at home. They'll thump them this week. So Syracuse doing syracuse things. The other game that it's at least worth keeping an eye on, Arkansas at Alabama. Alabama ranked number 11 this week. Uh, that game's on ESPN. So Arkansas, you you may wonder, like, hey, why are they being so mean to Sam Pittman? Well, unfortunately for Sam Pittman, he did the thing that you want to do, but maybe sometimes at a place like Arkansas you don't want to do. Sam Pittman really gave them a lot of hope during 2020 and 2021 that this program could get to the point where it could compete in the West. Now, obviously, the divisions are going away which is actually all the more reason that Arkansas fans are probably getting a little bit frustrated with the fact that Pittman is like annoyingly good and annoyingly not good enough. They're never in contention to win anything of substance, but they're never bad enough to really justify just being pissed and getting rid of them, right? They are perpetually seven and five. And in Arkansas, you know, if you're not a fan of a team like Arkansas or, South Carolina or Mississippi State. One of these programs that they're solid, but you got to be realistic about what the top end expectations are. Maybe once a decade you peak and compete for a, a a division or a conference championship. But looking back in the history of these programs, they are not going to be able to hang with the Georgias and the Alabamas and the Clemsons of the world. That's just the reality of those programs. So this is where, Good coaches like Sam Pittman end up getting fired. Um, Alabama, we talked about it earlier, they have a game model. I don't think Arkansas is going to be able to get them out of that game model. I would imagine Alabama would win that game pretty handily. Maybe it's close early. K.J. Jefferson has been in college uh, since the Hoover administration, and he is one of the more confusing people. There are weeks you watch K.J. Jefferson and you're like, oh, my gosh, this guy's like – Two hundred and sixty pounds. He can throw it a country mile, and he's really, really good. And then you'll watch him the next week, and he just looks like a fat, slow quarterback. And I can say that it's okay because I am both fat and slow. I am not a quarterback. Um, it, it, he, he's, he's, it's maddening to watch him because anything, anytime you expect something out of him he just doesn't really play well. But anytime you're like, wow, they ain't going have a chance to be in this game, he goes out there and he looks like Caleb Williams. Well, he looks like somebody ate Caleb Williams. But anyway, um, so five interesting games at noon. The top four teams in the country all playing at noon. So uh, that is what is happening there. 3.30, we got some real interesting games. Let's start with the just kind of the sicko game of the week for me. Florida at South Carolina. I thought Florida might struggle at home last week against Vanderbilt. I'm positive florida will struggle this week at south carolina south carolina's gonna win this game Uh, that game's at 330 on the sec network over on cbs you got the game that somebody has to lose and somebody's fan base is going to lose their mind when they lose texas a&m on the road in knoxville playing tennessee um here's all i'll say about this game I told you last week styles make fights when it came to Kentucky and Georgia and that I think Kentucky's a good team. I think they might win nine. They might win ten games this year, Kentucky. But they were a terrible matchup for Georgia. Tennessee has to run the ball to be effective. It was true last year. For all the highlights of throwing deep to uh, Hyatt and all of those guys and, and, and Tillman and all the, the big passes that Tennessee connected on last year, everybody missed that that offense is totally predicated on being able to run the ball and get into like second and five situations where then you can take those deep shots down the field. It didn't happen against Florida. Florida stopped the run and they were able to make Tennessee look completely helpless offensively. That's what's going to happen here, okay? Even at home, Texas A&M's defense is really, really good in the front seven, and I think they're going to stop the run, and they're going to see if Joe Milton can beat them. Now, last week, they stopped the run against Alabama, and they tested to see if Jalen Milroe could beat them, and he did. The A&M offense is going to have to be a little bit more effective uh, than they were last week, and the crowd noise is going to be a problem. I'm not saying this is going to be a blowout, But if I had to bet your money on it, I would put my money and your money on Texas A&M. The game of the day is absolutely the top 10 matchup in Seattle, Oregon, number eight. On the road, at Washington, number seven. That game is on ABC at 330. I have no idea who's going to win this game. I would pick Washington because they're at home. But Oregon has been one of the most impressive teams on both sides of the ball this entire season, but they had not really played anybody yet. Washington's offense, it looks like maybe the best offense in the entire country, which is saying something because you've got some really, really good offenses out there, uh, you know, with Caleb Williams and stuff like that. But Pennix has been absolutely amazing this year. This is going to be awesome. Just find some time. If you're going to abandon your family for three hours at any point on Saturday, this is the time to do it, 3.30 over on ABC. At 4 o'clock, you've got the uh, disgusting game of the day. If you want to watch Oregon and Washington and two high-level teams playing really high-level football, watch that game. If you want to see what the other side of the world looks like, go and watch on Fox at 4 o'clock, Iowa at Wisconsin in a game where where offense will be offensive to both of these teams. Um, I think Wisconsin's favored by like nine and a half points at home in this game. And the over under is 34. So I, I guess they're thinking that it's going to be like a, a 24, 10 or a, eh, 20. I, I, bad at math. Let's not do this on the podcast. I got myself in trouble there. Okay. Um, I don't know who wins this game, but I can tell you who's going to lose it, and that's anybody that takes three and a half hours out of their life to watch it. Just look for the score later. Um, I think Iowa would probably win it, but that's only because their defense is really good. I could see them winning like 10-6 with a pick six being the way they got their touchdown. But the drive for 325 has totally stalled out, uh, and uh, Iowa, disgustingly, the winner of this game is going to be playing on the Saturday Uh, the first Saturday in December, they're going to be getting absolutely murdered by whichever really good team comes out of the East. But one of these teams is going to have to show up in Indianapolis and they're going to be propped up by Fox as being like, oh, it's the Big Ten championship game. The best thing the Big Ten could do is just midseason go, you know what, we're we're, we're doing away with divisions next year anyway. Forget it. We're going to put Penn State Michigan and Ohio State, two of those three teams are going to play on that first Saturday in December because we want people to watch it. The Big Ten West is the biggest joke in all of college football, um, and that is true even if the ACC Coastal still existed. Um, so blech, the Big Ten West championship game there at 4 o'clock on Fox. 7 o'clock, you've got Auburn on the road at LSU. Again, styles makes fights. LSU is going to win this game. I don't think it's going to be very close. LSU's defense is absolutely putrid against the pass. Peyton Thorne could not pass the ball if his life depended on it, and it might because I think you're going to see LSU, their front seven, really dominate this game. Auburn will get there eventually under Hugh Freeze. He he doesn't have his guys right now. He's going to need a quarterback to start with. If Auburn's able to run the ball – They might be able to keep it interesting for a while, but what we saw in that Georgia game is when Georgia opened up the offense and just let Carson Beck throw it, Auburn's not very good against the pass. Jaden Daniels is an absolutely dynamic quarterback, and he is going to win this game probably pretty much by himself for LSU. At 7.30, we got three different games that are worth keeping an eye on. Number 10, USC on the road at number 21, Notre Dame on NBC. Like I said, Notre Dame losing last week, USC going to triple overtime against Arizona. For me, took a little bit out of this. I think USC wins. I think Notre Dame's completely and totally out of gas. Um, so the more interesting game for me is number twenty-five Miami at number twelve UNC. I, 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 I like UNC. I think they may be all respected at Florida State. I really like Drake May. I think UNC, with the defense, they finally got going under Gene Chiswick. I think they may be the best team in the ACC. Um, I'm really interested to see how Miami bounces back from the crystal ball fiasco last week. Are they galvanized? Are they together? Or when Drake May punches them in the mouth early in this game, do they just completely fall apart? Uh, you know, Tyler Van Dyke has had some really good moments. He threw for about a billion yards against Texas A&M in week three. This could be a really, really fun game. More than anything, this game is going to tell us, is UNC like a contender for the ACC, or is UNC a contender for a lot more than the ACC? Um, And the third game, I think, is at least worth keeping an eye on if you're a Georgia fan, Missouri on the road at Kentucky. You know, transitive property doesn't always work, but in this situation, we just saw what Georgia was able to do to Kentucky. In Athens, Missouri comes to Athens in the first Saturday in November, and at this point... Um uh, Missouri might be the only team left that could potentially give Georgia a, a problem in the East. I think by the time we get to Knoxville, Tennessee will have already lost to Alabama, which means they'll have two SEC losses. And even if terrible things happen and Georgia loses, they would still win the East um, in that situation. So the Missouri game and Kentucky, worth keeping, you know, maybe like part of an eye on. At 8 o'clock, we have another very interesting game in the Pac-12, UCLA at Oregon State. I don't know anything about either one of these teams, frankly, but they're both ranked in the top 20, and the Pac-12 is the best conference in America. So if those 7.30 games start to kind of putter a little bit, turn it over on Fox and uh, end your night watching some Pac-12, I guess after dark, but just after dark. That is week seven. That is our viewing guide. Let's take one more break and then let's come back and spend just a couple minutes talking about Georgia and Vanderbilt. All right. Georgia is favored by 31 and a half points when they go on the road for Vandy this Saturday. Um, I think Vanderbilt, Nashville, in the western part of Tennessee. I think that they are in the uh, Central Time Zone, so that means that this game is kicking off at 11 a.m. local. Vandy's um, two and five on the season, uh, but they're riding a five-game losing streak. They've lost three straight games in the conference. They've already lost to UK, uh, Missouri, and Florida, and they've lost those games by an average of 19 points. Uh, I I, I want to kind of flip this a little bit. Listen, George is going to win this game. We'll come back to that in a second. But I was looking up some stats this week since I didn't have to really do such a deep dive uh, statistically on this game. Carson Beck, let's, let's just put some of what he's done in some context real quick. Carson Beck is 144 of 196 on the season so far. That's 74%. It's actually 73.5%, but, you know, if you are an average student like I was, rounding up is very, very important. So um, 74% on the year. He's thrown for just under 1,900 yards so far this season, 11 touchdowns, three interceptions. He's passed for 300 yards in a game each of the last three games. He is fourth in the nation for pass yards this season only behind Shador Sanders, who only has to throw the ball because Colorado has no run game, Michael Penix Jr., who is the front runner for the Heisman, and Jaden Daniels, who is probably the second or third runner in the Heisman, if, if people are actually paying attention. I know LSU's lost some games, but the only reason they haven't lost way more games is because Jaden Daniels has been absolutely fantastic. Then it's Carson Beck. Let's talk about where he is, if he kept this up. Okay, And let's remember, he's only really got cooking over the last few weeks. Georgia's offense was really sputtering early in the year. It was was a lot of checkdowns. I think he was sputtering. Beck was sputtering a little bit, not willing to throw the ball down the field. They've opened it up. He has gained some confidence. Right now, Stetson Bennett holds the UGA record for most passing yards in a season with just over 4,100. Now, this is a little bit tricky, and the record books are always going to be like this in college because the more they expand the playoff, the more games you play, and they count the bowl stats now. So 15 games uh, that Stetson got to use last year to get that 4,100 yards. But if Beck were to play 15 games, and, and don't mishear what I'm saying. This is not me saying George is going to play and win the national championship. Just This is a statistical analysis just to try to put into context what pace he's on. At his current pl- pace, if he played 15 games, he would eclipse the record for all time yards in a season by a Georgia quarterback by 600 yards. He would be close to 4,700 or just over 4,700 yards at his current pace. His completion percentage of 74% would be the highest in Georgia history uh, by far. If he could keep that up for the entire season, again, Stetson last year, highest in the history of the school, with just over 68%. So 74% is his current pace. 68% is the current record. He's on pace to have the greatest passing season in the history of the program. That's that's the point, okay? Now, on pace through six games does not mean that by the end of the year we won't all be pulling our heads out or our hair out, okay? I, I understand that. But watching him in person on Saturday night – Really cook, I mean, really, really cook. It 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 made me like want to look at some of this stuff. So I wanted to share it with you. Um, what's probably the most impressive is that he's able to do all of this with an offensive coordinator that everyone hates. Everyone hates, and and I will do this one more time because sitting in the stadium last Saturday night in section three o three, row nineteen, that's one behind us. Listening, we were up 34-13 to 13 at this point. And Georgia threw an incomplete pass on first down, ran up the middle on second down, and got stuffed. God forbid we face a third and long situation. And the two guys that sit behind us at the game were just furious. Beck's terrible. Bobo's an idiot. What in the world are we doing? And my 11-year-old looks over at me. I laughed, so I got his attention by laughing. But he looks over at me and he goes, we scored four points. How could our offense be bad? My 11-year-old, from his mouth to God's ears, I don't understand why everybody in Bulldog Nation is so excited and so quick to get pissed off at Mike Bobo despite any factual evidence. This offense did not start out clicking on all cylinders. He's a new coordinator with a new quarterback with a new left and right tackle. Everybody take a daggum breath. Everything is looking really good right now. Now, does that mean 15-0 national champions again? Don't be dumb. But the offense is not what you need to worry about. Uh Uh-oh, I might have made some people mad. The offense is not what you need to be worried about. This offense is going to score enough for Georgia to win 15 games this year and to win a national championship. The defense is what you need to be worried about. And I know they played well against Kentucky, but as we go through this season and we play some more dynamic teams, you want to worry about something, worry about the defense, okay? Um, Georgia going into this game this week against Vandy, they're going to win. It's not about winning at this point. I mean, obviously you got to win, okay? But Georgia's going to beat Vandy. Vandy's not a very good team. Nashville is not a very hard place to play. Um, It's about getting healthy, okay? Georgia is four quarters away from their bye week, and, uh, and a trip down to Jacksonville after that. So Georgia needs to continue to get healthy, no injuries on Saturday, and just get home, rest up, because the back half of this schedule is starting to look like an actual problem. Now, I don't think Florida matches up very well with Georgia. Now, well, maybe, maybe they'll play differently at South Carolina Saturday, but where Florida's been effective is uh, Trevor Etienne running the football. And we saw last week, Georgia's really good against a traditional run game. I don't think uh, you really have to worry too much about Florida throwing the ball a ton on Georgia, and I don't think you have to worry uh, about a running quarterback when you're talking about Florida. The quarterback just slipped out of my head. I should have written it down, but I didn't. But uh, you're not going to have to worry about that a ton. But after that, Missouri has a legitimately great passing offense. Georgia plays Missouri after the cocktail party, then they host Ole Miss and o- Ole Miss for all of Lane Kiffin's like struggles against Alabama, Ole Miss is not nothing. And they're coming to Athens uh, right after Missouri, and then Georgia goes on the road to finish the season on the road at Tennessee and on the road at Tech. Not worried about Tech at all. Miami gave that game away. Tech is not a very good team. Tennessee up there, it's going to be a challenge. It it just is. Um, I think Georgia will be able to stop the run and I don't think Joe Milton can do much against Georgia's secondary, but that atmosphere, that's a game they've had circled quite literally for a year. Right? Like that's the game coming into this year. They think they deserved more here in Athens last year. They think they got unlucky. A lot of Tennessee fans think this the the uh the raining in the second half squashed the the inevitable comeback. I don't know why they think that, um but they do. So that's going to be a, a an all-in kind of game for Tennessee, for the fan base, for the team, for the players, everything. So Georgia's – the back half is is as much as everybody talked about how crappy this schedule was, and they were 100% right, Kentucky's a pretty good team, Georgia handled it. And they've got some good teams coming up over the next six weeks after this one. So Georgia's got to start really building into the team that they need to be and not so much the team that they were to start this season. As I said last week, I'm out of the score prediction business, but hopefully we see a lot of Brock Vandergriff and a lot of Gunnar Stockton on Saturday. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast this week. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful weekend. And as always, go dogs!